L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hello, my dear and wonderful nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am, of course, Liv. I don't know who else it would be. I am here today with a, not a new episode, and I apologize for that, um, but I am working on a new project that I can't talk about yet, but that has a deadline. When I can talk about it, I promise it will be completely worth missing out on a new episode this one time, and hopefully not more times, but we'll see. But today, I didn't want to leave you with nothing, so instead I thought when better than to re-air as a full epic full episode, I just said full twice for no reason, everyone's favorite series of episodes on Cupid and Psyche. This is, of course, the story that got me obsessed with Greek mythology to begin with. It is my favorite story, and so even though it's one of my older episodes, I love that this is one of everybody's favorite series of episodes. Everybody loves it so much, and every time I hear you all mentioning it, it makes me really happy because it's some of my favorite stuff I've ever done. So I'm just really here to be replaying it for you all. So if it's been a while, have another listen. And this way it's all in one. One big, long, epic Cupid and Psyche episode. 
Or if you've listened to it recently, I mean, hey, why not again, right? Thank you all so much for the support you give me. You're all so wonderful. And I'll be excited to tell you what's going on as soon as I can. So this is the fan favorite, Cupid and Psyche, all three parts in one. This is episode 10. Venus has a flair for the dramatic. Cupid and Psyche, part one. Our story begins in an unnamed city where the king and queen have three daughters. The youngest of these daughters is named Psyche and she is just bananas beautiful. Super hot, like Gal Gadot in Wonder Woman level gorgeous. The people of the city are just obsessed with Psyche. And not even just, again, a standard men ogling and catcalling women kind of way. No, it's like the whole town is under her spell. They can't even handle themselves. They're falling over each other in their admiration for her. They decide that she actually, she must be an actual human incarnation of the goddess Venus, who is, you guessed it, the Roman equivalent to Aphrodite. So, in this story, Aphrodite will be called Venus. Many of the Roman Olympians, as it were, uh, are where we got the names for the planets, which is pretty cool. So the townspeople are just all about Psyche. Now, the grossest thing about this part of the story is that the people obsessing over Psyche as a human version of Venus are most psyched, pun absolutely intended, that this version of Venus is a virgin because people are gross and invasive. Not only are the townspeople obsessed with her and treating her like a goddess, but her sisters are watching this happen and they're not thrilled. And these are not nice, supportive sisters who would think, how nice our younger sister is so appreciated. No, they're envious and devious and angry at the world. They're not nice ladies. So this assumption that Psyche is actually a human version of Venus gets so intense that the villagers are basically worshipping Psyche, and as a result, they are totally neglecting their worship for actual Venus, and she is not down with that. The gods are vengeful as fuck. Venus is super pissed that this woman is getting so much attention and that she's basically been left in the dust. Add to that, this attention is based primarily on how goddamn beautiful she is, and you've got a very peeved and jealous goddess. Beauty is Venus's territory, and she will fight for it. So, in all Venus's anger, she ruminates to herself, according to this brilliant translation I have, quote, So... Here I am, the progenitor of creation, the very origin of nature, Venus, the nurturer of the whole planet, and I'm placed in the position of divvying up my exalted privilege with a human wench and seeing my name cherished in heaven, desecrated by terrestrial trash? Needless to say, this translation is awesome and I'm going to use the term terrestrial trash forever. So Venus is clearly super duper pissed and she plans to ruin Psyche because she's a chill lady. Basically, she wants to make sure Psyche gets herself out of the way so everyone stops fawning over her. 
So she sends her son, Cupid, whose Greek name is Eros, and who is, importantly in this case, a full-grown man. I recognize that the main depictions of Cupid are the little cherubs, but that is not what this is. This is similar to when he hit Apollo and Daphne in that mini-myth. He's basically a super attractive young adult who also happens to have the powers of the famous Valentine's Day cherub. He's a bow and arrow and the arrows are tipped with some special sauce that causes everyone pricked by them to fall truly madly deeply in love with whoever they see post-prick. Eros in Greek mythology is described as pretty depraved, creeping into people's homes at night and ruining marriages and lives by making people fall in love with randos. That's his idea of a fun afternoon, which is why I love stories of the gods so damn much. They were so paranoid that a flying young man would sneak into their homes at night and make their significant others fall in love with someone else. Because obviously if a woman doesn't love you she's just under a spell and she hasn't just realized that you're a dick and maybe there's a better dude out there no it's definitely magic so venus is like hey son do me a favor and go ruin this woman okay everyone loves her too damn much and if she were married to off to some monster and or weirdo then they'd lay off her and go back to worshiping me she actually tells him to have psyche fall in love with someone who is quote utterly out of bounds Basically, she's suggesting someone who, when Psyche wants to be with them, she'll need to leave society entirely. Venus suggests someone who's been stripped of their civil rights and freedoms. She says, quote, Let him be so loathsome that he would look in vain through all the world for someone as pathetic as himself. Then she kisses her son with an open mouth and goes off to find a beach to lounge on. Again, she's a pretty chill lady. Aphrodite slash Venus has always been my favorite goddess, let's be honest. She just gives zero fucks. So Cupid is sent down to Earth to prick Psyche with one of his arrows and have her strategically placed to spot some monster and or weirdo first and fall in love with whoever slash whatever that is, taking herself off the market and leaving the people free to devote themselves to their worship of the super benevolent Venus. Meanwhile, on Earth, Psyche is having zero luck being married off, and obviously that's all that matters. If a man doesn't love you, you're nothing, right? So Psyche is so damn beautiful, and all the men are so utterly obsessed with her, but none have the courage or even the inclination to be in a relationship with her. They're all so intimidated by her. Men intimidated by a beautiful and independent woman. That's a concept we've never heard of before, right? So Psyche's parents are now hell-bent on getting her married off. Psyche's two older sisters are married, but Psyche has had no luck. I like to think that on top of all the men being intimidated by her, she was also just having none of that suitor shit. She knew she could do better, and she wasn't about to marry the first guy she saw just because women were supposed to. It's possible I'm projecting on this story, and I'm totally okay with that. At the same time, in the ancient world, women had to get married. They just... That's how it was. Without marriage, they basically couldn't be people. Like I said last week, women weren't official citizens in ancient Greece at all, and I assume it was the same in ancient Rome because they weren't exactly progressive themselves. So Psyche is picky, but she's also lonely. She wants someone who's good for her and who can take her away from her parents because for now she's just hanging out at home with nothing to do because she can't exactly go out and live on her own because patriarchy. 
Psyche's parents are also less than patient. Her father is annoyed that his daughter isn't married off because obviously he's a man in ancient Greece and he thinks that that's all women are good for. Her sisters are married off lucratively and he's wondering what the hell is wrong with Psyche. So he consults the Oracle and what he should do. He's even so bold as to ask the Oracle to set up a marriage for his daughter. That'll go well. The story of Cupid and Psyche in Apuleius is told by a narrator. This narrator is telling the story of the couple to others. And the book is pretty meta because at this point we're told that while Apollo, the god of the oracles, is an Ionian Greek, he was kind enough to tell the narrator of the golden ass the oracles answer in Latin. Very thoughtful. Just translating it for him. It's just sweet. This oracle's utterance is particularly insane even for an oracle. It says, quote, Array her for her wedding and to die, O king, and set her on a mountain high. Your son-in-law is not of human make, but nasty, savage, something like a snake. Winging above the ether, it defeats, maiming with fire and sword all that it meets. Jove fears it, Jove whom gods regard with fear, and Styx, black river, shudders when it's near. Translation. The king is told that he won't have any human son at all. No, it will be a dragon-beast thing that harasses the world with fire and a sword and is terrifying even to Jove, which is one of the Roman names for Zeus, the other being Jupiter, and all the inhabitants of the underworld. The river Styx is, of course, one of the rivers one crosses to get to the world of the dead. So the king's like, cool, better get my daughter ready for this super awesome wedding. My answer would have been to, oh, I don't know, ignore the oracle because that's crazy. Or if you have to believe it, maybe tell Psyche and let her decide that maybe she doesn't want to be married to something like that. So she'll just stay single like any chill chick. But no, this is the ancient world and you have to listen to the oracle. The family is apparently pretty depressed, but they brought it on themselves by going to the oracle in the first place. So I don't have much pity for them. They dress Psyche in wedding-slash-funeral attire and have a whole morbid wedding march that is simultaneously a funeral procession along a craggy cliff to the top of a mountain where they leave Psyche to await her fate. The ancient world was super awesome to women, if I haven't made that already clear in the entirety of this podcast. We're told Psyche's pretty resigned to this fate, though she places the blame pretty squarely on the fact that she was compared to Venus in the first place, which is 100% accurate and not really her fault. What have I said about being compared to the gods? Don't do it or let it happen. Just don't. Just find a way. Run away. Just any way. Don't do it. So there you go. The whole kingdom just abandoned Psyche on a mountain. There she is, alone, on this cold empty mountaintop, which frankly would suck in itself, but she's also waiting for this faded monster non-human craziness that's apparently going to come marry slash kill her. But instead, along comes the west wind Zephyr. Zephyr whisks Psyche off the mountain and down into this crazy beautiful meadow where Psyche promptly falls asleep because being treated to your own funeral procession and then abandoned to die can really tucker you out. When Psyche wakes up, she looks around wondering what the fuck just happened. 
Now, this meadow is bananas. It's greener than you can even imagine. There's a brook that's actually babbling. There are flowers that might as well be singing and dancing. It's just a complete paradise. Psyche starts to wander, and she comes upon a massive fountain. Pretty quickly, she realizes that actually this isn't just a meadow. It's the garden of an equally bananas beautiful mansion. This mansion, or palace really, has gold columns and high ceilings and mosaic floors and actually is basically just coated in gold and silver everything. But of course, this palace came before coating yourself in gold was straight up tacky. Back then, it just made you fancy. Back to this palace. Psyche starts wandering through it and learns that it has literally everything anyone could ever need. Like, you never need to leave it. You're set for life. But there's something weird about it. See, up to this point, she hasn't actually seen another human. It's a massive palace with luxury that's essentially unheard of in ancient Greece, unless you're a goddamn king, but no actual people. Very suspicious indeed. Also, you know, she was brought there by an anthropomorphized version of the wind, so there's that too. Suddenly, there's a voice. She can't tell where it's coming from, it just starts echoing throughout the house. This disembodied voice tells her to make herself comfortable. This is her home now, and anything in it is up for the taking. It tells her of a bedroom upstairs that's been made up for her. She should go get settled, maybe take a bath. So she does. She's pretty trusting of this beautiful paradise after being left out on a cold mountain by everyone she thought loved her. The house is made for Psyche. Everything in it is exactly as if she decorated it and stocked it herself. There's a feast, it serves itself, and music plays from invisible instruments. Besides being a bit lonely, it really sounds pretty awesome. But that night, as she's falling asleep, Psyche realizes she is less alone than she thought. She hears another mystery voice, only this time it's not so disembodied. The voice introduces himself. He says, hey, so actually it turns out I'm your husband. How about that? But just because she can't see the body doesn't mean she can't feel the body. So the man she can't see says, hey, I'm your husband. How do you like this beautiful house I got you? And Psyche is flattered because she's just been given a house and it's a pretty nice thing. Again, especially with what she had going on in her home life and, you know, what she was expecting out of this marriage. This seems pretty great. And then the man, perhaps a bit unceremoniously, switches from niceties to, you know, sex. And this is all without her ever seeing his face. Romantic, isn't it? No? Psyche uh. falls asleep after, and the next thing she knows, it's light out, and she's alone once again. She calls out to make sure, but no, she's definitely alone. This happens a few nights in a row. Always the same deal. Dude she can't see rolls up. He's pretty nice via his voice, but she has zero idea what he looks like. Then she's a bit spooked because, you know, the Oracle told her father that she'd be marrying, like, the craziest and scariest monster ever. But he seems so nice, and he certainly doesn't feel like a monster. Meanwhile, where Psyche's sisters live, they have heard that she's been sacrificed because I guess they weren't there for it. I mean, that seems like something that you could, like, visit home for, but who am I to say? This leads them to go visit their parents, who are apparently wrecked with grief. But again, they did this. I have zero pity. And that night, Psyche's mystery husband comes to her again. Now, over the past few nights, they'd been growing closer. Psyche was really developing feelings for this semi-disembodied voice. He was nice and caring and really seemed quite interested in her. Plus, he gave her this super palace and so far wasn't a scary monster. So she was kind of falling for him. 
It doesn't take much in ancient, ancient Greece or Rome. Don't rape, don't be a giant asshole, and you're a pretty good catch. But on this particular night, he had a very specific warning for her. He told her that, quote, she threatens you with deadly danger. He does not, however, say who she is or what the deadly danger is, but still, ominous as fuck. Then he tells her that her sisters have learned of her demise and that they will be headed to the cliff to pay their respects. If she hears them calling, she can't respond. She can't be in touch with them at all. He warns her that her sisters will try to get her to investigate who he is, and that would have dire consequences. Psyche agrees, we're told because she was feeling wifely obedience, but fuck that. I think she was probably just being smart. I mean, he did begin it with, she threatens you with deadly danger. Given how weird things have been going up until this point, and how, again, she was prophesied to marry a crazy, dangerous monster... I would trust the statement that maybe there's someone out to get her. Then again, maybe she has married a monster? Who's to say? It's a tricky line for Psyche to walk. She's also not super inclined to trust her sisters or feels super fondly towards them in general. They were always giant bitches to her. They were never fans of how she was treated in comparison to them. Her sisters were notoriously jealous of Psyche's beauty and the attention she got for it. All the same, though, family is family, and Psyche's feeling pretty isolated. After all, she likes her husband, which is nice, but he's never actually shown her what he looks like, and he only comes to her late at night. So, aside from that being pretty weird and creepy, it's also pretty lonely. She's very torn. What to do, who to trust... Eventually, Psyche becomes incredibly distressed that she can't see her sisters. They may have always been bitches to her, but she's really lonely and they're still family. Her husband tells her, you can see them, but you do so at your own risk. You've heard what I've warned you, but if you have to do it, it's up to you. But once again, he warns her not to be susceptible to their curiosity about who he is. They will try to convince her that it's a good idea, but he warns her that it could cause real trouble when it comes to the unnamed woman who threatens her with danger. Psyche is thrilled that she can see her sisters, and she promises him that she won't listen to them if they try to convince her. She trusts him and won't betray him. She says, quote, I love you to distraction, whoever you are. I'm as attached to you as to breathing. Cupid couldn't be better. Then she, quote, plants on him kisses of great rhetorical effect. Then they have a super sexy romantic night. She, quote, enfolds him in her compellingly convincing limbs. Seriously, this translation is awesome. Compellingly convincing limbs. Whew. The next day, her sisters are at the mountaintop mourning for Psyche. They're crying their eyes out and beating their breasts. Super dramatic. They're really putting on a show. And Psyche calls to them to stop worrying. Just chill. I'm here. I'm alive. It's all good. Then she asks the West Wind Zephyr to bring them to her, just as he brought her to the palace in the first place. Zephyr flies up, picks up the sisters, and brings them safely to the meadow in front of the palace. There they say their hellos, their holy shits, you're alive, what's going on? They hug, get all emotional, then Psyche asks them to come inside. She's going to show them her new home. Inside, Psyche pulls out all the stops. She gives them everything. Gold, jewelry, Basically anything they want. She lets them take luxurious baths. They have a feast with all the magically appearing things. It's all very showy and impressive. 
And after being shown the wonders of this palace, one of the sisters slyly asks, who's the master of this house? Translation, obviously there's a man that rules this place because that's just how these things work. Ugh. She asks who Psyche's husband is and what type of man he is. Shocker. Didn't see that one coming, am I right? Psyche's ready with a lie so that she can't be convinced to question who her husband really is. If her sisters don't know that he's so mysterious, they'll have no reason to question anything or to convince Psyche to be Snoopy. She tells them that he's a lovely young man, quote, handsome with a downy budding beard just beginning to cast its shadow over his cheeks. Sounds pretty young to me, but whatever. You do you, Psyche. She says he spends most of his time hunting in the fields and mountains, and before either of the sisters can question her more, she showers them with more gifts and gold and jewels and promptly calls Zephyr to come pick them up and bring them back to the mountain. So the sisters are sent on their way, but like I said, they are not super nice ladies. Immediately, they are troublingly jealous of what Psyche has. They don't take disappointment well, it seems, and they're still angry at Psyche for being treated so differently when they were younger, the way she was worshipped by everyone. One of them says, quote, So there's fortune for you. Cruel, unfair, and stone blind. Is this acceptable to you, that we sisters sprung from the same mother and father should have to put up with such different destinies? Seriously, they're not nice girls. The one keeps going on, saying, quote, As for poor me, I landed a husband older than my father, who is balder than a pumpkin and punier than a little boy, and keeps the whole house shut up with bars and chains. Sounds like a pretty w shitty way to live, but still, it's not really Psyche's fault. The other sister now takes up with her complaints, quote, well, the husband I'm saddled with is folded up and bent over double with arthritis, and he could hardly ever renew his homage to my erotic allure. Renew his homage to my erotic allure. That's what I'm calling sex from now on. Normally I wouldn't quote so much, but frankly this translation is so fucking awesome I can't help myself. Go read it though, honestly. Like I died. It's amazing. They keep on with their comparisons and ranting for basically an age. I, I can't just read out the book, but if I could, you would love it. Because my god, seriously, like two pages of these super over-the-top rants about erotic allure. Honestly, it's amazing. I don't know if other translations are so visceral and crazy, but I am thrilled that I found this one. And frankly, I picked it because it has a donkey. And he looks angry. So the sisters eventually decide that they're so pissed that Psyche has everything they've ever wanted in life that they're not going to tell anyone they even saw her. They convinced themselves that she was being a bitch when she gave them all the gifts and showed them her life and then sent them home nicely because they are a hint crazy if that's not already clear. So they won't tell anyone that she's alive. No one has to know and that way no one will know how much better she has it than the sisters. They decide they'll head back to those lovely husbands of theirs and come up with a plan to basically screw Psyche over to pay her back for the things they've imagined she's done to them. Episode 11 Sneaky and Snoopy, The Story of Cupid and Psyche, Part 2. The night after Psyche's sisters 
leave to plan their troublesome tricks, Psyche's husband comes to see her again. Once again, he warns her of her sisters, but this time he has an idea what they're planning. He tells Psyche that they will come back with a plan to make her spy on him, to convince her that she must see his face. But he tells her if she sees his face even once, she won't ever be able to see it again. Once again, he warns her that there is danger in letting these women convince her to distrust him. There is someone wishing the worst for Psyche, and it's all the better if she stays under the radar. It's all very cryptic, but he gets the point across. He leaves her with a final warning. He says that if they come back, and they will, that she can't answer any questions about him at all. He tells her that she will become pregnant soon, and if she protects their secrets, the child will be divine. But if she doesn't, the child will be mortal. It's a pretty serious warning. But also no explanation of why the child would be divine. The fact that Psyche isn't more curious about who he is is constantly surprising. A few days pass and start, Psyche starts to notice the pregnancy, but one night when her f- husband comes to her, he's got far more dramatic news. He says they're coming, the sisters, with a murderous plan to basically ruin everything. There's a lot of very intense words, words used. I feel I can't properly convey how serious he's being. He's basically telling her that everything in her life depends on her not betraying their secrets to her sisters. Everything. She tells him that he, she will keep the secrets and that he can trust her. That she just wants to see her sisters, though, so please can they come by again. She just needs to see them. She's really very lonely. The next day, the sisters arrive at the mountain in such a fury that they don't even wait for Zephyr to pick them up. Nope, they're super smart, and they decide to just go for it. They throw themselves off the mountain. Zephyr is not psyched. This is not the way things work. But he's faithful to Psyche and her husband, and so he picks the sisters up as they're falling, and he keeps them from falling to their deaths. Probably would have been better if he hadn't, but there you go. The sisters see Psyche, and they start fawning over her pregnancy. Everyone will be so excited, they say. You'll be such a good mom, they say. Meanwhile, they're fucking crazy, and they still haven't told anyone that Psyche's alive, and have basically spent all this time figuring out how to ruin everything anyway. But they don't show this. No. Instead, they say about the baby, quote, If he takes after his gorgeous parents, which would only be natural, well, a real Cupid's going to be born. Psyche totally falls for all this bullshit and welcomes them in. Once once again, she gives them everything. They're treated like queens. Until one of them feigns as if they haven't already had this conversation and starts asking Psyche about her husband. Who is he? Who are his family? Psyche forgets her original lie, big mistake, and makes up something totally different. He's a merchant, she says. He's wealthy. He's old. It's exactly the opposite of what she said before. Come on, Psyche. The sisters are sent off with Zephyr at the end of the day, and once they're away from Psyche, they talk about the little oversight. They figure, well, if she can't keep it straight who he is or what he looks like, then she probably hasn't even seen his face. And if she hasn't seen his face, that means that she's probably married to a god. And if she's married to a god, then she's about to give birth to another god. One of them says, quote, 
If she becomes famous as some divine tot's mother, the first thing I'll do is rig a noose and hang myself. Seriously, these chicks are awesome. So they head back again the next morning. And this time they feign as if they have all the concern in the world for their sister. We're just worried about you. You're living in a fantasy, but we've been keeping watch over you, agonizing about this terrible situation you're in. They tell Psyche they've found out that the husband that comes to her every night and the creepy crazy monster that the Oracle predicted she would marry are one and the same. (gasps) That her husband is, quote, a monstrous serpent with many whirled coils slithering, its neck running with bloody poison, its deep maw gaping wide. They tell her there are witnesses, that hunters and nearby townspeople have seen the monster returning to the palace at night. They tell her that the monster won't be feeding her and fattening her up for much longer. Nope, next up he's going to devour you and your unborn baby. Now, do you want that to happen? Or do you want to trust your sisters who only want the best for you and love you unconditionally? Psyche's too trusting. Guess who she goes with? This is when the narrator describes Psyche as, quote, a simple thing with an intellect like a tiny, delicate bud, which is a thing. She promptly forgets all her husband's warnings every time he was so specific as to tell her exactly what her sisters would try to pull on her. Nope, she forgets it all. Instead, she panics, loses her shit, then tells her sisters all about how she's never seen his face and how when she asks about it, he tells her she'll be very sorry one day, and obviously that means that he's the monster they think he is. Now, of course, Psyche's freaking out. She doesn't know what to do. Her sisters tell her that they've thought it through, and there is only one way out. She couldn't just, you know, leave. No. She has to prepare a weapon, find a blade, and sharpen it real good. Then she has to get an oil lamp, light it, but cover it so that no light escapes. Then she's got to go to bed and wait for him to come, as he always does. When he arrives, she'll sneak over and remove the covering from the lamp, filling the room with light. Then she'll take the tiny blade and slice the serpent's head clean off. Because we're assuming he's a serpent. From there, her sisters will be nearby and they'll take Psyche and all her things away safely and marry her off to a human. You know, because she can't not be married. All good, easy peasy, totally the right solution. After telling her this, they promptly got the hell out of there. They went back up to the mountain with Zephyr and then went straight to the ships that would bring them home. They fully abandoned her because they're awful women only looking to fuck shit up because they just got shitty husbands. I get it, ladies. You didn't have a choice. It sucks to be female in ancient Greece, but we take it out on men, not on our lovely sisters who would just happen to have some decent luck in life and are too trusting. Psyche now has this plan, but she's not totally sure. She wavers back and forth constantly. She trusts her sisters, which she shouldn't, but she also loves and trusts her husband. After all, while it's weird she's never seen his face, he is otherwise wonderful. Finally, she decides she's going to do it. She gets everything ready and she goes to sleep. That night, her husband comes and they have sex because I guess she's not too concerned that he's actually a scary poisonous snake monster. After he's fallen asleep, she gets out the lamp and lights up the room. And, you guessed it, it's not a scary snake monster lying peacefully on the bed. It's Cupid. 
beautiful, sexy Cupid. He's sleeping peacefully. She stares at him for a while. Seriously, he's super hot. Plus, he's got those beautiful white feathery wings off his back. They're folded up all nice so we can sleep. Honestly, he's pretty magnificent. I'd take him, Psyche, if you don't want to, I'm just saying. Psyche panics. Obviously, she didn't want to kill Cupid. She wanted to kill a monster thing. The knife falls from her hand because it doesn't want to kill him. She sways in her spot, and the lamp itself leaps back at the sight. Then she looks at the foot of the bed where he's placed his famous bow and arrow. She examines them and accidentally pricks herself with one of the arrows and draws blood. Seems like a dumb mistake to me, but what do I know? I'm not often touching the tips of very sharp arrows. Anyway, she's pricked herself with a love arrow, and so now not only does she love him because they've been, you know, sleeping together for months and married even if she only feels him at night, but also now she magically loves him. Super dangerous. She goes back over to Cupid, and now she's full of magic love lust. Seriously dangerous stuff. She gets a little crazy. She's not steady on her feet, and she's still holding that pesky oil lamp. She sways, and a drop of hot oil falls from the lamp and lands on Cupid, burning him badly. He wakes up with a nasty burn and sees immediately that Psyche has betrayed his trust. She's done the single thing he's warned her against doing. And he tries to fly off without a word, but Psyche grabs onto his ankle as he goes, and he ends up flying off with her. She lands on the ground outside, and he flies up into a tree to tell her his side of the story. He tells her how Venus had come to him, asking him to make Psyche fall in love with some monster guy. But, see, Cupid heads down there. He sees Psyche and is like, holy shit, this chick is awesome. And then he also accidentally pricks himself with one of his own love arrows because he's so caught up in his admiration for Psyche pre-love arrow. And then, so he ends up falling magically in love with her on top of his immediate natural admiration. So basically, this plan failed Venus pretty miserably. Cupid, now truly madly deeply in love with Psyche, decides to steal her off where Venus couldn't find her, and he makes her his wife. He says, quote, What I get out of it, apparently, is that you think I'm a monster and try to cut off my head with a sword. Though, in this head, I've only got eyes for you. He tells her he's going to punish her sisters for what they've done, and that he'll punish her too, but only by leaving her, and he flies away. Psyche, having learned all of this, is pretty distraught. She's kicking herself. Why did she listen to her sisters when Cupid had warned her? They had never liked her to begin with. They'd always been jealous bitches and... But she wanted family nearby so badly that she forgot all of that. Now that she knows she's been married to Cupid, which is quite the feat, and she's ruined it, she tries to kill herself. She throws herself off a cliff and into a river. But the river itself is so devoted and fearful of Cupid's wrath that it doesn't let her die. It catches her and puts her on dry land nearby. 
When she's back on dry land, she notices that the god Pan, the god of shepherds and sheep, is nearby. He's actually sitting with the nymph Echo, who you might remember from an earlier mini-myth. And he's teaching her how to repeat the tones he's making, up and down the scale. Sounds pretty adorable, to be honest. Anyway, Psyche notices Pan, and he offers her some advice. He says, quote, Here's a real feat of prophecy, which would pass muster with the experts. If I deduce correctly from your feet that won't quit tottering and staggering and your alarmingly pale skin and your ceaseless sighing and those eyes rolling back in your head, you're suffering from an oversupply of love. So listen to me and stop trying to make away with yourself by plummeting off things and forget any other sort of death by your own hand. Stop grieving and moaning and instead pray to Cupid. Give him your full devotion because he's the greatest god there is. In researching this, I thought, man, to save time, I could totally leave out this pan section. And then I read that quote and I thought, nope, worth it. Basically, Pan gives her the most ironic, amazing advice possible. You're overwhelmed by love? Why, just pray to Cupid and all will be better. But what if the love you have is for Cupid and he's the one who left you? Oh, well, that's a trickier situation. Maybe the rules don't always apply. Psyche doesn't tell Pan her predicament, mind you. She thanks him for his advice and leaves, wandering off alone. Finally, she comes to a land where one of her sisters happens to rule with her husband. She's announced to her sister and tells her all about what's happened. She recounts how it was those sisters who convinced her to do the stupid thing in the first place and how it really bit her in the ass because, hey, turns out she was married to Cupid. But after telling the story of how it actually went while pointedly calling out the awful advice those stupid sisters gave, she elaborates a bit. She says that when Cupid woke up, he yelled, quote, You! Because of this terrible crime, consider yourself divorced from me this moment. Leave our marital home and take anything that's yours. I'm going to wed your sister with all the required ceremonies. And gave your full legal name. Who has the intellect of a tiny, delicate bud now? The sisters quickly made up a lie to tell her husband. She told him that her parents had died, and she went immediately to that same old mountaintop. From there, she called to Cupid that she was the wife he deserved, and she flung herself from the cliff, asking Zephyr to pick her up and bring her to the palace to meet her new husband. Of course, Zephyr said fuck that, and instead, pieces of her ended up everywhere. Just everywhere. <laughs> Next, Psyche headed over to her other sister and told a similar lie. That sister was, of course, just as shitty and did the exact same thing, and once again, pieces of her everywhere. Such a satisfying ending for them both, if you ask me. From there, Psyche scours the land, trying to find Cupid. But, turns out, Cupid is actually in his mother's bedroom on Mount Olympus. He's pretty injured from the oil burn, and he's making a big fuss. Venus isn't there, though. She's down by the beach. At the beach, she's approached by a bird, a talking bird, evidently, that tells her where Cupid is, and that there are some pretty bad rumors going around. Everyone is saying that Cupid is off in the mountains with trash, and that Venus is just wasting her time dipping her toes in the sea. 
They're saying that because of this, there's no charm or lust or love left in the world. Venus doesn't take this well. As we've learned, she has quite the temper, particularly when it comes to people worshipping her and her reputation. Of course, this is also the first Venus has heard of Cupid being with a woman at all. She asks who it is, suggesting all types of nymphs and lesser goddesses that could have seduced him. The chatty bird, though, isn't sure. But he thinks he heard her name is Psyche, and that Cupid is madly in love with her. This, of course, sets Venus off. She knows Psyche, knows her well. She yells, quote, Does he actually love Psyche, that leech on my beauty, that rival for my position? I guess that little growth of mine thought I was a madam pointing the girl out to him. Ooh, you should get to know that one. Seriously, everyone go read this translation for yourself because it's amazing. Venus then goes immediately up to her room on Mount Olympus and finds Cupid. And she goes off. Oh man, does she go off. I can't read it all because that would be cheating, but basically she accuses him of being awful always. Of torturing her when he was a baby. She says she's going to have another son and sign away everything Cupid has to that son. She's going to give it his wings and his bow and even his arrows. She's going to give it all her riches. She's going to disown Cupid. She goes crazy. She's raging away, thinking all these options for how to punish Cupid sufficiently. Finally, she turns to storm out of the room, but Ceres and Juno are there watching her. Now, Ceres is the Roman name for Demeter, and Juno is the Roman name for Hera. So it's really Demeter and Hera looking at Aphrodite, but again, I'm a purist. They try to talk Venus down, pointing out that he really hasn't done anything. Did you think he would never love a girl? Is that what's so bad? He's a young man now. Seems only fair to let him have a girlfriend. They basically point out that she's being overdramatic. She's the goddess of love and lust. Who is she to tell her son he can't do just that? Venus doesn't take this well. She storms out and continues her search for Psyche. Meanwhile, Psyche is still searching high and low for Cupid either to tell him how much she loves him or just to apologize profusely. And she comes upon a temple. She knows she's closest to him by appealing to any one of the gods, so she goes in. Turns out it's a temple to Ceres, who comes down to speak with Psyche. She tells her she knows what's going on and that Venus is out for blood. Basically, she has the whole world searching for Psyche. She wants her dead. Psyche asks Ceres if she could stay there in the temple, away from Venus. But Ceres doesn't want to get on Venus's bad side, so she forces Psyche to leave. Continuing on, she comes upon another temple, this time to Juno. She begs Juno to let her stay in the temple to shield her from Venus's anger. But Juno feels the same as Ceres. She can't go against Venus. She tells Psyche that Venus is her daughter-in-law and she's always loved her as a daughter and really she's not so bad. This, of course, does Psyche zero good, and now she's screwed once more. Meanwhile, Venus is continuing with her search, making it more and more insane. She calls upon Jove, Jupiter, whatever you want to call Zeus, and she asks him if she can have the help of Mercury, the messenger god and the Roman name for Hermes. When she has this help, she sends Mercury searching Earth for Psyche, and now there's a reward. So Mercury is asking everyone, literally everyone, if they've seen her. And if they have, they get the reward. 
So needless to say, people are pretty keen to turn in Psyche if they get the chance. Also, this whole time Venus has been calling Psyche an escaped slave, which is apparently why it's okay for her to go to all this effort to track down one girl. She's property, so you know, that's cool. Psyche, though, has learned of this reward, and so she says, fuck it, there's nothing left for me to do but to show up on Venus's doorstep. So she does. She rolls up, and one of Venus's servants runs out to greet her, treating her like the escaped slave Venus has said she is. She's brought in to see Venus, and Venus greets her as her daughter-in-law and tells Psyche that Cupid is suffering from a life-threatening wound, i.e. that burn. Pretty unclear how on earth an oil burn would be life-threatening to a god, but there you go. Maybe ambrosia doesn't account for second-degree burns. Venus tells Psyche this, that Cupid is dying, and then promptly calling in her servants who are appropriately named Anxiety and Depression, who take Psyche away to torture her. They're named Anxiety and Depression. I love just personifications of feelings. That is what ancient Greece was good for. Seriously, Venus is not taking this well. I dare say she's overreacting about the whole thing. After Psyche's been tortured, she's apparently near death, and Venus calls her back in. Now Venus finally points out that she knows Psyche is indeed pregnant, and she starts rambling on about how she'll be a grandmother, but how the child can't be acknowledged because of this scandal, and that apparently Cupid's father didn't consent to the marriage, so that makes it illegitimate, which I think is ironic, because Cupid's father is Mars, the Roman name for Ares, who is definitely not Venus's husband. But apparently, even when your father is a random god who is not your goddess mother's husband, he still needs to consent to your marriage. The one plus I'll take from this is that it seems to suggest that men also had to have their parents' consent before they got married, so not just ladies who don't have their own say in who they spend the rest of their lives with. Bonus? Venus even goes so far as to say she may not even let, let Psyche have the baby in the first place. Seriously, she's taken it a bit far. Don't know if she's threatening to force a miscarriage or what, but it ain't chill, Venus. Like, you need to take a couple of steps back. You need to take a look at the situation. You need to realize you're crazy. And just... Next week, Venus gives Psyche a series of utterly bananas tasks as a sort of punishment slash test of Psyche's resilience and her love for Cupid. Stay tuned. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. This is episode 12, Ancient Cinderella, but with less singing and more violence. Cupid and Psyche, part three. So here we are. Psyche is on Venus's territory, and Venus is not psyched. We hear that Cupid is in the same place, too, but they haven't seen each other yet. He is, of course, still deathly ill from his oil burn, which, I'll say again, sounds pretty benign, but what can you do? Maybe gods are immortal until they're burned with a little hot oil, and then everything goes to shit and it's all over. So, as further punishment for Psyche, for, you know, generally just being beautiful, but also for injuring Cupid, Venus grabs a whole slew of produce, or produce, whichever. She grabs hundreds of seeds and chickpeas and lentils and beans and basically all forms of tiny vegetables and legumes, and she throws them all together in a bag and shakes it around like a giant pliable maraca. Venus then tells Psyche that she must take all these little pieces and sort them out again into their various types. Totally normal and not at all insane and super bizarre punishment. Then Venus leaves to attend a wedding, as you do. Psyche, though, just stares at this bag of veggies and legumes and is basically just like, what the fuck is wrong with you, lady? But it turns out Psyche's got friends. She's basically ancient cinder fucking Rella. A nearby aunt, yes, the bug, notices her plight and takes pity on her. Plus, we're told he's a fan of Cupid. Cupid's got a number of fans, as it seems. Little Ant Dude calls together all his hundreds of ant pals and they take to the task. They sort everything into neat piles and then they peace out. Easy peasy, what were you worried about, Psyche? Of course, later that night, Venus shows up, she's just been at a wedding, so she's totally wasted, and she sees that the task is done. 
Immediately, she knows it wasn't Psyche who did it, but instead of thinking maybe it was hundreds of tiny insects, she assumes Cupid had come along and magically helped Psyche. So she chooses to blame her injured son instead of bugs. Cupid is, of course, still locked up in his room. He couldn't have left anyway. He's hidden away, guarded, so he can't get out and see Psyche. They're both magically in love, in addition to having been together quite a while and having created a baby and everything, so kind of real love. So, you know, they're both kind of into seeing each other again. But Venus won't have any of that. So the next morning, Venus summons Psyche to see her again. She's got another totally insane punishment to dole out. She leads Psyche to somewhere fancy on Mount Olympus. I don't know if it's Mount Olympus. Wherever Venus lives permanently, who's to say whether it's magical or not? Anyway, that's where they are. Did I say Mount Olympus last week? Anyway, they look out on a field and Venus says, so down there are a ton of sheep. They just hang out and graze, totally chill. But here's the trick. They have golden fucking fleece. They just grow gold on themselves. You know, as you do. Now, Psyche, go down there and steal a tuft of their gold, will ya? Now, if you've heard of a myth specific to Golden Fleece, this is not it. That's Jason. These are probably the same sheep. I don't know. All I'm saying is this isn't the myth you're looking for. Psyche agrees, but not because she wanted to complete this task. No, she just thinks it would be a good way to kill herself and end it all. But what did we learn last time? It's super hard to kill yourself when you have personified or anthropomorphized beings there to stop you. See, in this case, a reed, like the plant that's in the nearby river, stops Psyche from killing herself. On top of that, that reed also tells Psyche that she doesn't want to try to get the tuft of gold from the sheep now. No, they're in a bad mood because it's hot and they're cranky and they'll death kill you if you try now. The reed tells Psyche to wait until the sheep have calmed down and hide in a tree and then shake the branches of that tree and she'll find all the tufts of gold she needs. So Psyche does and she brings the gold back to Venus, who is once again not super thrilled that this punishment didn't either drive Psyche crazy or straight up kill her. Venus has goals, if you haven't caught on. We're told, quote, the goddess scrunched up her eyebrows and said with a bitter smile, You two don't fool me. That degenerate did this for you as well. So once again, she blames her son. I think Venus is kind of losing it, honestly. Didn't this start because she loved her son so damn much? Now it seems like she's just blaming him for everything, even though she's the one who said he's near death. It just doesn't make any sense, Venus. <laughs> to be outdone by herself, Venus has yet another crazy punishment slash task for Psyche to perform. She points to a mountain nearby with the river coming from it. That river being, you know, the river Styx, the famous river of the underworld. She tells Psyche to go get some water from that river and return with it. She hands her little crystal container to put it in and off goes Psyche. Psyche, of course, immediately thought of how she could just use this task to kill herself, something I wish she would stop doing because, frankly, it's getting a little tired. But turns out this mountain and the river are bananas. Just terrifying. 
The mountain is craggy with all these sharp cliffs and protuberances, a word in the book. You're welcome. And the river is literally described as belching. And it's basically all just terrifying. I mean, it's belching. And I guess for this reason, Psyche gives up trying to kill herself. But at the mouth of the river, she does encounter a bunch of unmoving serpents who start heckling her. That's right. They're like in the mountain, but also scary. So I guess they can do damage. They're not totally unmoving. Anyway, they say, quote, get out. What do you think you're doing? Hey, what are you up to? You'd better watch it. Beat it. This is as much as your life is worth. That last one seems a little over the top to me, but what do I know? Psyche's a bit overwhelmed by this, and she is basically just useless in fear. She's kind of just standing there. I mean, one of them did tell her that this as much as her life is worth. That's a low blow. But then... Old Jupiter decides to jump in, and yes, I did write Zeus there and have to correct it mid-sentence. There's my cat. His name's Lupin, by the way. Anyway, Jupiter comes down in his eagle form, something he sometimes does for a purpose other than to rape, which is nice of him. And he kind of heckles Psyche first, bugging her for not being great at this whole thing. He tells her that actually everyone is so afraid of this water that even the gods wouldn't dare to try to steal any of it. Then he grabs the jar from her, and he gets past the weird serpent guys with the judgmental tones, and he steals some of the water. And then, in a weird lie, he tells Psyche that he was there on order of Venus. Psyche brings it back to Venus, and in another surprise turn of events, Venus is not thrilled that Psyche succeeded. She says she has yet another task for Psyche to perform. This time, she's to go into the underworld. Yep, straight up into the world of the dead, which basically no one ever goes into because, you know, death. And she's to find the queen of the underworld, Proserpina. You know her as Persephone in the Greek. And she's to ask Proserpina for some of her loveliness, because Venus wants it. Venus says to ask for some of the loveliness, because Venus needs it, having run out caring for her sick son. <coughs> Bullshit. Guys, I won't try to sugarcoat it. Psyche tries to kill herself again. Just, like, give it up, Psyche. You have stuff to live for, just, you know... Take a breath. Maybe see a psychiatrist. Anyway, she decides to launch herself off the top of a tower. This is the tower she's been staying in. But the tower itself, of all things, tells her not to kill herself. Weirdly, the tower also seems to have incredibly detailed instructions as to how to enter the underworld. Like, really detailed instructions. Where to go, who you'll encounter, the fact that when you're in a boat crossing the river, there will be a deceased senior swimming by who wants to get in, but you can't let him. I'm picturing Harry and Dumbledore trying to get the locket in the cave. Just bodies everywhere. Magic and fire. Anyway, Psyche receives these incredibly detailed instructions, which I won't try to explain here. There's a lot of talk of going to Lacedaemon, which is also called Sparta, you might know it, and finding a hole where she should enter and all this craziness. The underworld is not a nice place to be. 
Not at all. It's smelly and dark and full of monsters and guards and obviously hella dead people. The tower even tells Psyche about old Cerberus, Fluffy, the three-headed dog that guards the entrance to Proserpina's mansion. Give him some food, she's told, and she can get right by, because apparently it's very easy to get past a massive dog with three heads. Just throw it a raw steak, for God's sake. So Psyche listens to these instructions and gets to Proserpina and asks for some of her loveliness. Oh, and she's also explicitly told by the tower not to look inside and examine the contents of whatever Proserpina gives her. So she follows every instruction down to the letter. She handles everything perfectly. No mess ups at all. It's really quite incredible. Until, obviously, she decides she will look inside the jar that Proserpina gave her. Because curiosity and cats and all that. Of course, when she opens it, there's nothing inside. Very mysterious. Well, nothing except an infernal sleep. Straight from the river Styx. And so immediately Psyche falls asleep and is... Basically dead to the world. Unwake-upable, you might say, if you wanted to make up words. Now, up to this point, you might have thought, you know, this story is actually pretty incredible when it comes to females. I mean, sure, Psyche tries to kill herself like a hundred times, but you know, mental health is a real problem, so let's not criticize. Thankfully, she was saved. But otherwise, she's pretty badass. You know, she's completing all these tasks. She's trying to save herself and her marriage. You know, she's not running and hiding. She's standing up for herself. But let me stop you right there and remind you that basically everything in the ancient world came from the mouths of men. So while all of that is true and Psyche was a badass bee kicking ass, in this moment that Psyche has fallen asleep, Cupid realizes that his burn is all healed. How very lucky. So, of course, he goes looking for her and immediately finds her and immediately fixes things. Now, as much as I want to think, blah, 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 here's another story of a man saving a woman even after she did lots of other stuff herself up until this very moment that she needed saving. As much as I want to say that, this moment is what is captured by Antonio Canova, the artist whose work I Instagrammed last week. Just go back and look at the post, okay? And I'm going to talk about it more at the end because... In this moment, Cupid finds Psyche and he wipes the sleep off her and back into the container and he tells her to finish her task and deliver it to his mother. He's got some things to handle. Cupid heads straight up to Mount Olympus and he goes to talk to our friend Jupiter, Zeus, all-powerful dipshit. Jupiter, in his defense, has a pretty fun speech to give to Cupid. Cupid, of course, asks Jupiter to intervene to stop Venus from causing Psyche so much grief and to just let them be married. In this translation, you know the one, he calls Cupid Sunny Boss and accuses him of all sorts of exciting things, including, quote, 
in violation of public order, you have contrived disgusting adulteries, damaging my standing and reputation. My countenance should remain cloudless and above it all, but you have given it the low forms of wild animals and birds and chattel of the herds. So essentially he's blaming Cupid for all the times he's been a super creepy asshole. Then he has Mercury call a meeting of all the gods and goddesses. They convene to discuss the trouble that is Cupid. Quote, We've had enough scandal with these daily stories of his adulteries, seductions, corruptions, etc. We must eliminate any opportunity for more and bind his boyish friskiness with the hobbles of matrimony. Poetic, wouldn't you say? Then Jupiter turns to Venus, and he tells her she can cool it, that her family reputation is intact, it's all good. Then he tells Mercury to go get Psyche. Mercury brings Psyche up to Mount Olympus, and Jupiter tells her to drink the ambrosia, the drink of the gods that I haven't really covered yet, but is a thing. He tells her to drink, and in drinking, become immortal, a goddess. She does, and then a wedding is held for them on Mount Olympus, all very decadent and exciting. It's attended by everyone, and there's lots of details of the contributions by some of the minor deities. But one I feel must be shared is that the hours, quote, empurpled everything with roses and flowers. That's right, empurpled, as in made purple. Purple! I guess I should say that purple was, like, the royal color in ancient Rome, but still, empurpled. God, I love it. Well, thank you all for listening to this re-airing slash fun combined episode of Cupid and Psyche. So many of your favorites and also my favorite myth of all time. So I'm really happy to um, give it to you here. I just want to say that I did uh, record the introduction to this episode a few days ago, sort of before a lot of things started happening um, in North America. And so before I leave you completely, and um, next week there will be a new episode, but before I say goodbye, I did just want to say, if you follow me on social media, this is very clear to you, but in case you don't, so I just want to say very clearly and bluntly, Black Lives Matter. The murder by police of Black people in America and also in Canada, if to a lesser degree, is a horrific and rampant travesty on North American culture and everything needs to be done to stop this and stop police overreach and police brutality and even the way police then respond to protests about people getting killed. It's all just so painful to watch and I want to make sure that I use my platform as much as possible. So just again, I want to reiterate, Black Lives Matter. Thank you all for listening. I am Liv and I love this shit. L-A-S-I-K 
LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.